For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. You think about this. Why would anyone ever choose to believe a lie? We might even think to ourselves, that doesn't happen. Nobody would actually do that. If they knew something was true, well, they're going to believe it. And if they knew something is not true, then they're not going to believe it. And that sounds like one of those basic things that we all just take as axiomatic, fundamental. But the answer is that people do this all the time. You maybe have seen this on a smaller scale. You've got a friend or a family member who is willfully ignoring the truth that is right in front of them so that they can keep on doing the things that they want to do. And every day, almost everyone, I'm going to say that, almost everyone selectively filters and evaluates and chooses what they will believe about God and life and death and morality And the filter and the system they use to choose is not based on what has been shown to them, what is true, but on what they want to believe. This is what Paul is going to explain to us here. And it is this, our tendency to ignore what is true about God for what is true about what we want. That is the reason above every other reason that God is justified in his wrath and his judgment of man. Now, it would be very easy for me to stand up here and point all the fingers outward and say, that's just the trouble with the world today. Well, it certainly is. But it's also something that we as Christians need to guard against. On another level, we can look at what the Bible says and say, I believe every word of it. And we can say, I believe in the inerrancy of Scripture, the authority of Christ. But then when it comes to the thing that we like, all of a sudden we get real dodgy and real clever with our Bible study and our methods that we use. And we say things like, well, that's your interpretation. We've got to guard against choosing what to believe about God, not based on truth, based on preference and opinion. To exchange the truth about God for a lie is the ultimate sin. But to choose to face the reality of God, the reality of who we are as men, the reality of good and evil, that is the first step to repentance. To stare it in the face and realize what's real and what's true. It's painful, it's hard, but it's the first step. And this is where Paul is going to bring us in the beginning of his long journey through the gospel, throughout the book of Romans. It begins in what seems like a very dark place. But we have to start here or the rest of it isn't going to make any sense. So let's read again verse 18. We read the whole thing, but let's take it one verse at a time here. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. 
Now, Paul is beginning to explain why do we need the gospel in the first place? We have this glorious evangelion that we talked about, that he says, I've become a minister to take it to the whole world. Well, why do we need it? And the first thing Paul is going to do in chapter 1, all the way through halfway through chapter 3, is to establish guilt. He's trying to lay out before the Romans and therefore before us that everybody is guilty before God. He opens with that word for. And we saw last week that Paul loves that word for. It's gar in Greek. It's an explanatory word. He says one thing and he says, and that's true because of this, and that's true because of this, and that's true because of this. And he's going to continue stacking these clauses on top of one another. When we look back, he said that the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. That God has revealed his righteousness. And that's really what the gospel is, the revelation of God's righteousness. And then he says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. You can see the similarity of those phrases. And that might seem odd. Wait a minute, the revelation of his righteousness and the revelation of his wrath, those should be two different things. Well, not exactly. We talked about this last time. The word righteousness in Greek, it's an important one because it's all over the book of Romans, is dikaiosune. It means fairness. Just on a real basic level, it means fairness. The English word righteous refers to morality as a whole. That's fine. The New Testament will use this word that way too. But especially in the book of Romans, it refers not just to morality as a whole, but specifically to fairness and justice. Justice, righteousness, fairness. So that righteousness, that fairness is revealed. And we need a gospel, we need good news, because the wrath of God is also being revealed, hear me, as part of God's righteousness. Those two things are so closely tied in the text you can see. The righteousness of God is revealed, and the first part of that is the wrath of God. And when you understand the righteousness of God as the fairness and justice of God, it makes much more sense why the wrath of God would be tied to that. The wrath of God is arrayed against sin. Why do we need good news? Because we've got bad news. The wrath of God. And we say, oh yes, God is wrathful. But where is that wrath aimed? It's important to know. Where does that wrath come? Against sin. Now, we hear this word wrath. Let's talk about it for a minute. We don't really use the word wrath unless we're, we're being funny usually today. You're going to feel my wrath when you're, you know, your kid's... Don't set the table in a timely fashion or something like that. But it's a biblical word that most folks are uncomfortable with. Not just because they don't like the idea of God being wrathful and judgmental, but they think, isn't wrath and anger and emotion, and isn't that part of being human? And therefore, how can God have this and not be human? How can he be God and, and still be wrathful? Well, there's a couple things to know here. The first of which is that God's wrath is not impulsive. When we get angry, we, we see red, as we say, right? You ever had that experience where you get so mad you can't even really see what's in front of you? That's a, that's a frightening experience. I always feel my anger like right, right in here somewhere. I can feel it building up. You know, your emotions live in certain spots maybe. And you do things when you're angry that you're going, I, I wish I hadn't done that. In fact, in the Bible, in the Old Testament, if you injured somebody or even murdered somebody in a fit of anger, like if you were fighting and, and you just hauled off and hit somebody or you did something that you wouldn't normally do, you could be excused for that. There was no death penalty for that because the Bible recognizes that 
wrath and anger will carry you to terrible places. However, here's what we need to know. Anger and wrath themselves are not sinful. Your wrath and your anger is God-given and it is corrupted by sin, which is why Paul can tell us in an echo of the Old Testament, be angry and do not sin, which tells us it is possible to be angry and not sin. So God himself can be angry and not sin. Now, folks will say things like this. Yes, God has wrath. And what that means is it's God's response against evil and there's nothing emotional about it. Well, I would disagree with you there. We hear that term emotional and again, we think impulsive. We think that we're being carried away by our emotions and our passions. But that's simply not the way the Bible portrays it to us. The Bible talks about God's wrath being kindled. It talks about God's heart being broken. It talks about God rejoicing. And we can say, well, those are anthropomorphisms. Big word meaning you're making God sound like a human by describing him that way. To which I would say, what does it say though? (laughs) It says that God is angry. And God's emotion is holy and pure and righteous and never carries him away from what is righteous. Which is why we are called not to stop being emotional. We are called to bring all things into subjection to Jesus Christ. It's only right for God to be wrathful when he sees injustice. Jesus Christ, very famously, turned the tables over in the temple when he saw them ripping people off and preventing people from coming to Christ, specifically from keeping Gentiles from coming to Christ. The whole court of the Gentiles had been turned into a marketplace. And so Jesus went in and made a whip and beat people out of that temple. God's wrath is not impulsive. It is emotional in the most holy way. It is powerful and it is inerrant. That's the best part. Because God is righteous, he's never going to haul off and toast somebody and say, why did I do that for? That was the wrong guy. I shouldn't have. God's never going to do that. This is, you read some of the old gods. You read the Greek gods or the Norse gods or the Hindu gods that they would just get angry and, and blow up a whole city. And they say, oh, I wish I hadn't done that. Or like this goddess will come to this god and say, why did you kill this hero? And he goes, you're right. Let's go back to, the, to hell and bring him out. Now, I'm sorry about that, buddy. God never does that. God is inerrant in his wrath, which is relieving in one sense, but in another sense, it's that much more terrifying because the goodness and righteousness of God is so perfect and so holy and so tied to his wrath that we know that we're in for it. Nahum chapter one is one of the, I think, most important passages in the Bible that describes the wrath of God. I'm just going to read this one verse. Nahum 1 verse 3 says, The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. And the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in whirlwind and storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. Slow to anger. Praise the Lord. God God doesn't get mad at the drop of a hat. But there's slowness to anger. But when he gets there, what does he say? Great in power. And the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in whirlwind and storm. We've, we've had some whirlwinds and storms around here lately, haven't we? You know how, how intimidating and fearful it is when the, the tornado warning is out and the sirens are wailing and you can kind of hear it, that coming down. And it's the middle of the day and all of a sudden it gets so dark. I remember driving up in the, the junk truck 
one day, and those things are not exactly stable. Let me tell you, but I'm on the freeway, and then it just, in, a, in an instant, it got, went from day to dark. The wind was blowing. The rain was crashing against this thing, and I, I'm like, I'm going to die in this truck right now. I didn't, praise the Lord, but that's, that's what the wrath of God is like, the Bible says. The fear that you feel, the helplessness, all our amazing American infrastructure, and yet here comes a tornado, and we know that we can't stand against it. There's nothing to be done. That's how it compares the wrath of God. When God pours out his wrath, it's inescapable. And now we have to ask, so who gets the wrath of God or where is the wrath of God aimed? It tells us against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Against you and me. That doesn't seem fair. Well, do you have ungodliness and unrighteousness in you? Well, I mean, everybody does. There you go. You're getting ahead of Paul when you say things that way. Ungodliness, the Greek word asebeia, comes from the word ah, which is a negation, and then the word sebo, which means to worship. So unworshipness, impiety might be a good way to translate that word. Ungodliness is good too. Unrighteousness is adikia. So we got dikaiosune, this is adikia. It's the opposite of what God just said. It says, I'm revealing my righteousness against your unrighteousness. It's the opposite of God. To not be giving proper worship to God and to be acting in a way that is contrary to his character. To be ungodly is to be immoral. And our, our greatest wisdom, unfortunately, often ignores this. We say being immoral and being ungodly are not always the same thing. You can be not like God and still be righteous. Or you can be like God and be unrighteous. This is a terrible mistake. Because God is the only one that existed before the world was made. God spun the world into existence. So when God made the first thing that was not him, when it became not like him, it became worse. Because it's anti-reality. It's anti-existence. That's what sin is. It's not a matter of preference. And we can see this by the havoc that sin spreads upon the world. Sin never makes things better. Have you noticed that? Sin, sin is cancer in God's world. It's a virus, if you want to use that illustration. It's poison. It makes everything worse. And the world wants to come in and they do what Isaiah says and they start calling what is good evil and what is evil good. And they start saying, if we tear down the righteousness of God and we build up our own righteousness in a Tower of Babel type scenario, then we can create something better. It's never, ever worked out. People who do that go down in history as the worst villains and the worst tyrants who ever existed. And God, as the creator, as the just creator, looks at that virus, that poison, that cancer in his world, and he's full of wrath. Look at what they've done to this world that I created. Look at all the innocent people that are being harmed along the way. And even the innocent people at the bottom, they're not even standing together. They're making it worse for one another. Genesis 2, verse 7, God told Adam, the day that you sin, you will surely die. God, God didn't trick us and, and let us sin and then say, oh, now you're in for it. He warned us ahead of time. And this is the first fact of the gospel, that we are all in the crosshairs of God's wrath. That we are wrong, God is right, and when it comes down to judgment, you're not going to stand. And I think we all know this intuitively. Which is why I think so many people have a hard time accepting this. 
We're talking about believing a lie on purpose. If you kind of know in your heart that you're not a great person, you know who God is, you know what the standard is, you know you don't even meet your own standards. Forget God's standards. You say, this year we're going to do this, this, and this, and I'm going to stop doing that. Never works. Paul's going to get into that in chapter 2. He's like, you don't like the law? Pick any other standard. You can't meet that one either. So then you say, well, then that means that you are under God's wrath, doesn't it? And everyone says, well, I don't know. Because to accept that fact is to so radically shake your world that many people just can't, they can't get there. And there's many people, I've even seen publicly lately, who are coming right up to the line of the gospel. And they say, I think this Bible is true. I think Jesus was real. I think the Christians are right about most things. We got rid of the gospel and things started falling apart. Maybe we should bring it back. But then they start getting there. And step number one is Romans chapter one. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against you. And they can't quite take the step. Because to do that is to admit that I am desperately lost. And that's a hard thing for people to admit. Even if you know it in your heart, you'd rather not believe it. Because that would be an incredibly anxious thing to believe if you don't go all the way to the gospel. And that is the defining characteristic of that unrighteousness. It's revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. Well, what is that exactly? He tells us at verse 18, those who suppress the truth. That word for suppress is kateko. This is the same word it used in 2 Thessalonians when it said that the Holy Spirit is restraining the Antichrist. So use that image. To kateko means to hold back or hold down or suppress or restrain. Somebody once used the illustration, and I love this, of trying to take a beach ball and hold it under the water. That you can do it, but it takes effort, right? It's hard to do that because it's always trying to pop back up. That's what unrighteousness is. I'd rather not think about that. That's what ungodliness is. The rejection of God. And as we know from Exodus, God's name is I am. You're rejecting truth to believe something else. And there are consequences to that, as Paul will explain. Let's look now at verses 19 and 20. For what can be known about God is plain to them, who's them? The men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. What can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. Now here's the first objection. You say the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all who reject God's truth, his beingness. And the first objection is, well, if I don't know the truth, how can I be blamed for not believing the truth? This is Bertrand Russell, the famous atheist this was his complaint. They said, if you stand before God and he says, why didn't you believe? What are you going to say? He said, well, I'll say, sir, why did you go to such great lengths to hide yourself? I think when he got there, what God told him was, I sent you people to ask you after one of your lectures what you were going to do when you stood before me. You debated with the most famous Christians in the world, right? That's probably what God said. But this is the thing. People say, well, I don't know it. I don't know God. I don't know what's true. So how can I be blamed for that? Well, Paul's going to destroy that argument here with another four at the beginning of verse 20 or verse 19. There's one in verse 20 also. There's a lot of them. Wrath is coming because of world distorting sin and we are culpable for it. And people cannot claim ignorance because as Paul says, ignorance about God is a hypothetical scenario. 
There is nobody who is ignorant of God according to the book of Romans. Well, how can you say that? He says in verse 19, because God has shown it to them. There's a play on words here that you don't grab in the English very easily. He says, what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. The word plain and the word shown are from the same word in Greek. The word plain is phaneras and shown is the verb form phanerao. So he's saying it is obvious because God has made it obvious. He has obviousized it to them. It's not obvious. God's like, I, I said it is because I've made it obvious. And God's the judge. If you're standing before the judge, you can say, I did not have enough evidence. And the judge says, well, my ruling is that you did. You, you should have known. You should have known, says the judge. He himself says, I've given you enough to go on that to reject it is to incur my wrath. So there are things that can be known about God and ought to be known about God by everybody. According to the scripture, what things? Well, he, he names two invisible things here. So he's not saying that everybody's had a vision of God or that everybody knows what he looks like. These are invisible attributes. He says, number one, eternal power. Number two, divine nature. Eternal power, divine nature. So God expects men not to know everything about him, but to know a few things. Number one, to know his eternal power, that there is somebody whose power extends beyond this time. You get the idea of omnipotence here. And his divine nature. To understand basically that there is a God. So God expects you to be able to look at the world and know even at the most basic level, there is somebody who is above time, whose power is greater than mine, who's in charge of all this. That's pretty basic. And once you say that, it's kind of hard to argue with that, isn't it? He says, since the creation of the world, people have believed these things. And that's true, isn't it? All over the world, people are worshiping something. You don't come across atheist cultures in the wild, you know what I mean? They have to be handcrafted by men in the laboratory, so to speak. People believe in God. And even the ones that are the biggest atheists, they'll still go and do yoga and talk about their chakra and the spirit of the universe and all that. And what's the difference after a certain point, right? But you say, well, no, that's not fair. How can God expect us to know that he exists? He says, by looking at the things that have been made. What can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. Well, what's plain about God? His invisible attributes, his eternal power, his divine nature. They've been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. How are they clearly perceived? In the things that have been made. Reminds me of Psalm 19, very famous verses here. Psalm 19, verses 1 through 3. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. So this point Paul is making comes right out of the Old Testament. That the heavens, the earth, the sky, the things that are made declare God's glory. And you don't have to speak the language to get it. it. Every language gets it. That there's more to this world than what we see. Through creation, God may be seen, the Bible says. You look at creation, you should know there is a creator. This is what we call general revelation. Special revelation refers to things like scripture. It's going to tell you detailed, specific, inerrant revelation. 
visions from God, things like that. General revelation are things that are available to everybody. And they can't get you all the way, but they can get you to the starting line. General revelation, as you look around at creation. I already kind of said this, but have you ever considered atheism only thrives in urban, man-made environments? Not out in the woods. Never outside. We never find cultures that are steeped in nature and in the beauty of outside and spend time in the woods and under the sun and on the water that say, I don't believe that God made anything. These things develop and grow up in the urban centers, in the packed, man-made, concrete jungles. That's where atheism comes from. When you surround yourself with only things that we've made, then you tell yourself, well, what do we need God for? I'm walking around, there's skyscrapers, there's concrete, there's buildings and signs and all the stuff that we made. Well, what do you, what do you need God for? But then you, you drive outside that city and you start seeing other things. You start seeing trees. You start seeing the stars. You start seeing the animals that are running around. And the farther out you get, the more and more likely people are to say, there's no way this just happened. Every tribe around the world believes in, even if it's not God himself, they believe that there is a spiritual realm. Every ancient culture worshipped gods. Even in America, the Romantic movement, the most spiritual, so to speak, that wasn't Christian movement, was all talking about a return to nature. we got to get back in the woods. Henry David Thoreau and those guys. Get back in the woods, get in touch with nature. And as they did so, they began to be like, you know what, I think that there's, there's something divine in all this. And then even in the, the Cultural Revolution in the 60s, all the, the hippies that were abandoning their own culture, which was tragic, but they're picking up not atheism, as they get back to the, to the earth and back to the ground and back to outside, man, they start picking up all these spiritual ideas because you can't hold to that rigid atheism when you're surrounded by all the stuff God made. I, I think that's amazing, and I think we ought, to, we ought to look into that more. Even if you look at the statistics today, rural states have a higher percentage of belief in God than urban ones. And even in the urban Populations, by the way, most people believe in God. You shouldn't believe all the hype that you hear. Because the deeper we look into the things of the world, the deeper we look into atoms, I find this fascinating, the smaller we go, the less likely it seems that it should all work. Now, why, why do these things hold together? Well, the electrons rotate around the protons and the neutrons which hold together. Why? I don't know. Well, we've got these quantum fields where things seem to kind of pop in and out of existence. What? Make any sense? What, what does that tell us? Uh, I can't really tell you what that means. The earth should be heavier than it is. The, the universe should be bigger. Where, where is everything? We'll call it dark matter. We don't know what it is. The farther you look out into the universe, you see these galaxies and these stars and these planets that we're discovering. And it just keeps going. And now they're saying the universe is so big, we think it's getting bigger every day. Because it's just going, going, going. The splendor of God's creation. You've, you've all watched those documentaries where you see the animals and even the, the little critters that you don't care about. Like, oh, come on. He's going to talk about field mice. I, I'll never forget this. I was watching one documentary and it went from like lions to field mice. I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. I'm not going to watch field mice. But as it goes on, I'm like, look, that's amazing. Oh, look, that's so fast. And they're building these little houses and they're walking on the grass and they got these ways to avoid the predators. And I'm like, I'm watching this thing fascinated by field mice. The more you look at it, it's splendid. What does that tell us? That someone greater than us made all that. 
Somebody made all that. There's got to be somebody out there that put this together. And even, let's, let's leave aside nature for a minute. Even it's your own human relationships. Human life. The way you live. I know so many people who have been finally convinced that they've got to get their life on track. They've got to find God wherever He is at the birth of their first child. There's something about that. There's something about a marriage that stays together for a long time. Even look at the fact of logic and wisdom. Why does math work? Well, of course it is. No, no, hold on a minute. Why is everything so organized and structured that we can track even things that seem untrackable? What is beauty anyway? We look at the sunset. We say, that's so beautiful. Why? Why is that beautiful? Who made it beautiful? And there are people that want to come and fight what I think is a losing battle and saying, it's not beautiful. You've just been trained to think that it's beautiful. It's like, well, then everybody has. What is beauty? What is wisdom? All these things that we see around us. Ecclesiastes 3 verse 11 says, God has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart. Yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. That's a fascinating verse. God's made everything beautiful. He's put eternity into our hearts. Everybody knows there's something else out there. That's why we make all these all the people that say, I'm scientific and I don't believe in God. What do they do? They write all these stories about other planets and other aliens and other life forms. And maybe there's another dimension where all this is true. Because something in their soul is crying out for that. They want it to be true. They need it to be true. Even though they've intellectually said no. He's put that into our hearts. Yet, the second half of the verse says, so that he cannot find out the beginning to the end. This is an important point to make. And Paul makes it here too. This is not to say just by staring at the trees and the stars, you can know everything about God. Thomas Aquinas and other people used to try to develop what was called a natural theology, which is we should be able to arrive at every doctrinal position the Bible tells us just by looking at nature. And they would say things like, well, there's four winds, north, south, east, west. That's why we have four gospels. And those things seem a little tenuous the farther along you go. All Paul is saying here is that God has given you enough to get started. He says it's plain. He says that such people are without excuse People who suppress that innate inner voice that says, there's somebody who made all this. How much faith really do you have to have to assert that everything wonderful, everything beautiful in life is a meaningless accident? I'd rather believe in nothing than believe in a holy God. You ever ask yourself, why do people who, I know I've asked this before, why, why do raging atheists, not people who say, I don't know, I don't think I believe in God. I'm talking like the, the violent ones, right? That I don't believe in God and no one else should be allowed to either. Why do they care? Right? Why should you care? If you don't believe in anything, if you think everything I believe is stupid, why are you spending all your time trying to convince me that, it, that I'm wrong? Because it is a testimony to what they have rejected. Everything in the universe is meaningless. It means nothing. That's a hard way to live. And meanwhile, here's all these other people living their lives with meaning and purpose. Believing that lie that you can't stand. And there's that spite and that jealousy and that fear and sadness that comes in to want to try and squash it. To suppress that truth. Because if, you, if I look at your life and I see the meaning you're living, that tells me that the meaning I don't have is to be found in the thing that you believe, which I rejected, and I can't face that. That's why God's wrath is revealed. Because you have enough evidence to know God 
but you choose to reject it. And he explains that in more detail in the following verses, 21 through 23. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Another explanatory four in verse 21. They're without excuse. They're without excuse, how can you say that? Four. He shows us what, what a suppression of the truth looked like. Remarkably, he says, they knew God. And this has tripped up some people. I, I don't think it's that complicated, but I was surprised to realize there's actually a lot of debate on this. People saying, is this a historic statement? Meaning he's talking about Adam and Eve who knew God personally and chose to reject him. There's some who believe this is a salvation history statement, as in the, the, the humanity knew God and chose not to know God. And then there's those, which is where I've always taken it, as a personal statement. That you as a person have been given enough to know God. God has made himself known to you. I think there's probably a bit of all three in there. The point is, you knew enough about God that God could say, you know me. You know who I am. I wonder how many people who think they're arguing with their conscience who are, in fact, having a dialogue with the Holy Spirit. And you're going to get to heaven, they might actually recognize that voice that speaks out to them. But despite knowing God, he receives no honor and no thanks. That's the failure. That there was no honor given to God and there was no thanksgiving given to God. Instead of watering the seeds of knowledge that God had planted, they chose to suppress that truth. They say, well, wait a minute, you just said that they can know enough about God to get started, but not everything. So doesn't that mean that those who worship God in Muslim countries or who worship the, the trees and over here, isn't that them responding to that, that inner voice? Well, no. Paul's going to get into that more next week. But what did Jesus say in Luke chapter 11, verse 10? He says, everyone who seeks what? Finds. Jeremiah said, you will find the Lord if you seek him with all your heart. You've got to trust God. He says, I've given you enough to start seeking. And if you kept seeking, you would have found me. But you didn't. You did not seek me. You chose to suppress that truth. And he says that when you do that, when you suppress the truth about God, when you choose to believe a lie and deny that inner conscience that is speaking to you, he says, your thinking becomes warped, that it becomes futile, it becomes foolish, that you're darkened in your heart. You ever be walking around in your basement or your house at night and you don't turn the lights on, you think you're one place, and then you bang your knee into something? Oh, okay, I'm over here, turns out. You try to go down the stairs and you think that there's one more, so you fall down and you get to the bottom. He says, that's what your logic and your thinking is like. It's darkened. Yes, you might have technically sophisticated logic to be able to find your way, but you can't see where you're going. Those brilliant eyes that God made you are not going to do you any good. Such an important concept. That to reject God is to also reject the ability to think logically. And the world loves to talk about their logic and their reason. There are even those in the church that want to subjugate Scripture to reason, which is not good. But what the Bible's telling us here, that your thinking is futile. Your heart is foolish. It's darkened. You're claiming to be wise, but you're becoming fools. Why is that? 
Because you might be going through the process of logic well enough, but if you're not working with all the variables, you're not going to come to the right answer. If you've got a math equation that you're trying to solve, but you don't know that X actually equals God, you're going to solve for something else. But I did the process all right. It's like, yeah, but, but you didn't have the most important piece. You don't have the truth. It's futile, meaning you can do it all you want. It's not going to do you any good. And it becomes foolish. Has any culture claimed higher wisdom than ours? What, what, do we, what do we celebrate? What's the most highest thing for us? Science, which is a word that means knowledge, that we know things. Right? It's even last year, and, and the political season always makes me laugh. Everybody wants science on their team, even on things that have nothing to do with science. You know, Well, you're just rejecting the science. We throw it around, science, science, knowledge, 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 wisdom. We're smarter than everybody else. Yet, if that's the case, if we elevate knowledge more than any other culture, according to Scripture, that makes us the greatest fools of all. Because verse 23 tells us that choosing to believe the lie degrades the person who does so. And we'll get into that much more next week. Exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Says the most common response to people who reject the truth about God was idolatry. Choosing to worship created things, not the creator. Choosing to reject the glory of the one that, that spread the stars out and say, let's worship the star itself rather than the star maker. Let's worship the earth rather than the one that spoke the earth into being. Psalm 106. This is probably one of the places where Paul got this phrasing from. There's also another passage in Jeremiah. I think it's chapter 2. But it says, They made a calf in Horeb and worshipped a metal image. They exchanged the glory of God for an image of an ox that eats grass. They forgot God, their Savior, who had done great things in Egypt, wondrous works in the land of Ham, and awesome deeds by the Red Sea. They exchanged the glory of God for the image of an ox that eats grass. I love how sarcastic the Bible gets when it talks about idols. He's like, you made, you made it. You cut the tree down, and you burned half of it in the fire, and then you carved the rest of it into a god, and you bowed down to it and said, save me. And of course, there they're referring back to the golden calf. Now, we, we read the story of the golden calf, and we can forget what was happening before this. The Mount Sinai was in flames. It was smoke coming up from the mountain. It was on fire. It said that there were trumpets and shouts and voices coming out of the mountain. And it shook, and the people trembled and were afraid. And Moses goes up in there and comes back out. And then he goes back up in there again, and he took too long. So while that mountainous thing is happening behind them, they said... Let's make a golden statue of a cow and worship that. How foolish. Not only had God done that on the mountain, but he had brought them through the wilderness with water out of the rock. He had parted the Red Sea and, and drowned all of Pharaoh's armies. He had sent ten plagues and dominated the gods of Egypt. And they say, let's worship a cow. Let's worship an ox that eats grass. That's, that's suppression of the truth. That is deliberately choosing to reject what you have seen with your own eyes, what you know to be true, and instead worship a lie. And as these later verses will demonstrate, that worshiping a false god deliberate or directly leads to 
degrading of the body as well, which is what happened at the golden calf. It says that they rose up to play is the euphemism there. We've talked about this in the book of Genesis, that very often that phrase to play or to mock is euphemistic for sexual activity. There was an orgy going on in front of the mount of God that was on fire while Moses was receiving the law. Because they degraded their minds and it immediately led to the degrading of the body. This is what happens. It's degrading to reject God. I mean, well, those days are over. Well, no, they're not. In most parts of the world, this is still going on. And, and it, you know, if you've spoken to me before, I've been to Nepal a few times, and anytime anybody wants to talk about the beauty and the dignity of the worship of the Nepali people, it's, it makes me angry. It's degrading to these people. It's degrading, and I feel bad for them, that when, when you... There's the holy bird flying across the sky, and the holy bird poops in the middle of the street. So what do we do? We set up an idol to the bird's poop, and we put our fingers in it, and we put it on our foreheads to carry the blessing of the God. It's degrading. Just about every ritual that they have in that part of the world involves drinking the urine of a cow. It's degrading. Well, that's just their cult. No, stop it. That's a, it's a filthy, horrible thing that these people are trapped in. When you reject the knowledge of God, you degrade yourself. <laughs> but we don't do that. We don't worship false gods. Oh, yes, we do. We just don't give them names. We don't worship beasts as such. But there are people that would happily give their lives for the life of a kangaroo rat or a sea turtle rather than their own brothers and sisters. We worship the earth. We worship finance. We worship pleasure. We worship ourselves. It's all about me. I am God. Come close your eyes and let's meditate to find the God within you. And if I'm God, then whatever I want goes. So who are you to tell me that what I'm doing is wrong? Isn't that the most arrogant statement that's ever been made? Who is you to tell me that what I'm doing is wrong? As if I can never be wrong. It's amazing to me. We've rejected truth, that there is no truth. And we're seeing the outworking of this. Because you know what we've done? We're saying there is no such thing as objective truth anymore. All that's left is perspective truth. What I believe to be true, what I've said. This is why when everybody wants to talk about politics or philosophy now, they open it up by saying, well, you know, as a woman or as a man, or as somebody that grew up in the, what are they doing? They're establishing their perspective, saying, it might not be true for all y'all, but it's true for me, because how I grew up. But if you do that, people are still people. So what's happening? Are we coming to this really nice, groovy, everybody's hanging out and letting everybody live? No, now it becomes a game of, my perspective's going to beat your perspective. If all that's left is opinion, then my opinion is, I should be on top and you should be down on the bottom. The church has been ringing that bell for decades, and they've been telling us that we're crazy. And here it comes. Now it's a fight to see who wins. Rejecting the truth about God, so that now you say there's no such thing as truth at all. And that's such a foolish thing to say. I am the arbiter of what's right. It's like, really? You? What's so great about you? Why would we choose to believe a lie? Why would we reject the truth about God? What is it about us that doesn't want to face what's real? Well, in the book of John, Jesus tells us, John 3, verses 19 through 20, why does God have to judge the world? Why does the wrath of God have to be revealed from heaven? Why? He tells us, this is the judgment. Older translations, this is the condemnation. This is it. 
Light has come into the world and people loved darkness rather than light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. People prefer darkness. And that's why God has to judge the world. Why suppress the truth about God? Why worship an idol instead of the true God? Why live life according to whatever you want? Because that's it. People want to serve their own flesh and their own desires and their own passions and all that God stuff gets in the way of that. And that's the judgment. It is the sinful flesh within us that hates God's light. Everybody knows that the wicked things we do are wrong. But what do we say? Just don't think about that. Don't worry about that. I had to do what I had to do. God will understand. That's suppression of the truth. It's the ultimate wickedness. And the world claims, well, listen, if God ever appeared to me, I would believe him. If you could prove it, if God showed to me and, and revealed himself to me and gave us an, an, a miracle that no one could doubt, then we'd believe him. No, because he did and they didn't. Jesus showed up. God made flesh and the people knew. Don't, don't kid yourself. They knew who he was. They knew he was Messiah. They knew he was the son of David. They knew he was the king of kings. The disciples knew, in fact, that he was God, very God. But they say, all right, good, you're here. God is finally here. So God, would you please tell them that I've been right all along? And Jesus didn't do any of that. Render to Caesar that which is Caesar's and to God that which is God's. And as for you Pharisees, and as for you scribes, and as for you rich people, and as for you poor people, Jesus was bringing truth to everybody and people didn't like it. So they said, you know what? Caesar's not so bad after all. Whenever Jesus contradicted their deeply held beliefs, they had enough and they crucified him, which we go, wait a minute. That guy healed you of leprosy. He opened up the eyes of of your blind friend. He cast a demon out of your wife and now you're chanting crucify. Why is that? They were going to stone Jesus at one point. He said, I've done many good deeds. For which one of these are you going to stone me? Because Jesus was bringing the light of truth to their lives, which meant they would have had to change. They would have had to start loving Rome. They would have had to start loving those Samaritans. They would have had to stop ripping people off at the tax table. They would have had to stop these foolish plots to assassinate their Roman governor. They would have had to start loving one another. And they said, forget it. I'll do it my way. And so when the light of truth shines today, people try to suppress it, to shout it down, to chain it up. Because their deeds are evil and they prefer them. Do you really believe that if Jesus Christ showed up today in all his glory and splendor and people said, Lord Jesus, what must we do? Tell us what's true. And Jesus said, you must stop committing all this sexual immorality. Do you think everybody would go, yes, Lord, we'll do it right away. No, tomorrow you'd see articles in every newspaper. Should we really believe Jesus anyway? Isn't Jesus violating our freedom? Aren't we built on liberty and doing what we know we ought to do? People are not going to listen unless they are first broken. And understand the wrath of God. That's why the world gets so offended when you talk about wrath. Wrath is coming for you. How can you say that? Well, God said it. Well, I don't believe that. How can you say you don't believe it? Well, it hasn't been proven to me. God says he's given you enough. Well, it's your opinion. I'm going to live my life the way that I want. I've known tons of people 
They talk to me and they're, they're scared of hell and they want to believe in Jesus. And you start talking to them and you start talking about repentance and they got to stop doing this and stop seeing her and say, well, I don't know about all that. So, well, which is it? Do you want to avoid hell or do you want to keep living the way that you want? And most people will choose to keep living the way that they want to live. Even in the church, we dodge what the word has to say about the most sensitive personal matters to us. Which is why we strive to open up the word, read what it says, and try to believe it and do what it says. I'm always so appalled and amazed that these Bible teachers who rise up telling us that actually what the Bible's been saying all this time is what everybody else already believes. And they're celebrated, and they're given parades, and they're given tenure, and they're given book deals. Everybody's like, see, this Bible teacher says we can do whatever we want. Why can't you be more like him? And you say, don't, don't you know that you're just teaching what the rest of the world is doing? Don't you know that you're being applauded by the people that say they hate Jesus and everything he stands for? Anything you exalt above God is idolatry. And the judge is always just. And that's Paul's point here, that we are all under God's wrath because we've rejected the knowledge of him that has been put within us. And we rejected it so that we could chase our own lust. And when we do that, we degrade ourselves in the process. That is what has poisoned God's creation. People know what is true. They know what is right. And they instead choose to do something else. And he cannot allow it to continue or he would not be good. Everybody wants to say that. Well, if God is really good, he wouldn't let these terrible things happen. But they fail to realize that they are, they are the perpetrators. They themselves are not in the category of innocent bystander. They're in the category of the one who's causing all this trouble. God's got to judge these people. It's worse than that. He's got to judge all these people. Because that same thing is in you. Many people are just as wicked and just as evil as any Hitler or Stalin or anybody else. But they just never had the opportunity and the power to live it out. And so what do we do? We become these petty tyrants in our own little families. We're just as controlling. We're just as domineering. We're just as manipulative and even violent over these five people as we would be if we were over five million people. Oh, but those are the wicked ones. I've never done that bad. But the Lord's like, it's the same thing. You've got the same infection. And I've got to root out the infection, not just trying to stamp out the symptoms. And this is what preaching the gospel is. The first thing we do is we shine the light into the heart of darkness. And that's a dangerous thing because people will lash out at you for that. How dare you? This is what happens so often. We, we want to start, talk about what the gospel says. People don't even want to address that. They just say, what you said was offensive to this and that and him and her and me and this. And I can't believe you would do something like that. Ignoring the light because they prefer darkness. This is a mistake that we can make sometimes as Christians. We think that everybody would get saved if we could just present the gospel the right way. God desires that everybody could be saved and that no one should perish. But you've got to understand that some people, if they were given the choice between living the way they want now and going to hell or changing the way they live and going to heaven, they'd rather go to hell. Maybe they wouldn't say it quite like that. But that heart is in people. And that's something only the Holy Spirit can change. That is why you must be on your knees for your brothers and sisters that need Christ. Because the, the idea of saying, looking up and, and believing Romans 1, is to look up and say, everything I've ever believed is wrong. I am 
one of the people that God must judge. I'm in the, I'm not as bad as them, right? I'm in the Hitler, Stalin, Mao Zedong category. I'm not over here in the innocent category. And that means that if I die today, I've got eternal damnation waiting for me. That is a scary thing. Almost everybody cannot bear that. I've even seen people on TV or online recently that are talking about this and they're like, you know, you'd, you'd think that you should believe in God, but to believe in God is to believe that we're, that we're doomed. And how can anybody believe that? that? That's suppression of the truth. That's stepping up, seeing the truth and saying, I don't like the truth. There must be something else. This is not just looking inward. This is also looking upward. Not just saying I'm wrong, but saying God is right. Because on the final day, you're going to be judged based on what you did with that eternity that God put in your heart. Did you follow it all the way to the gospel? Or did you say, I'll take God's wrath and live how I want? Acts 17 says, the times of ignorance God overlooked. Right? God's been patient for a long time. But now, Paul told the Athenians, he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. This is what a New Testament believer must do. Let people know God's not, not letting things slide anymore. Jesus has died and risen from the dead. I'm here to tell you that truth. You are now accountable to believe it. Or you will stand before God and he'll judge you in righteousness. You can either take your own or you can take Christ's. So which is it? Are you going to die full of hope that you'll be granted mercy by faith in Christ Jesus? That you're going to stand before God and even though you are filthy with sin, the Lord's going to say, my son's blood has already covered all of that. Or are you going to die bloated with sin, depraved, degraded, defiant before God, only to then face the wrath of the Almighty Judge, who will not spare you due to ignorance. I didn't know, will not fly on that day. Because in His kindness, He has not left you without a testimony. And so you have no excuse. Wrath is coming. And only Jesus Christ can save you. You have heard now, that inescapable truth. Wrath is coming and only Christ can save you. So from now on, the rest is up to you.